Game Cool Books, Episode 56, A Novel Answer. In discussing The Amber Spyglass, we'll be taking the chapters two at a time to help move through and to keep track of the shape of this long story. The first thing you'll notice is just how much longer this book is than the other two. However, many of the chapters are actually very brief. The physical book is also striking, at least in the U.S. hardcover edition I have. The publisher did a cool thing where the dust jacket has a circle cut out, a spyglass view, which, when you slip the book out of its jacket, you could see how utterly surrounded the characters are by the faceless dead. It's powerful and a little creepy. In some editions, there are epigraphs not just for the book as a whole, but for each of the chapters. There were none at all for this subtle knife. The title, The Amber Spyglass, though, continues the pattern of introducing a remarkable object. In this case, the spyglass belonging to yet another major character. Though she's not an entirely new one, Mary Malone takes on a much larger role in this story. Though I'm not sure it's quite the equivalent of Lyra or Will in the other two. Looking at those epigraphs just briefly, their very quantity, so there's three of them this time, dilutes for me the importance of any one of them when we compare it to the gravitas of the passage from Paradise Lost at the start of the series. We do get an extended passage from America, a prophecy by William Blake. The morning comes, the night decays, the watchmen leave their stations. The grave is burst, the spices shed, the linen wrapped up, the bones of death, the covering clay, the sinews shrunk and dried, reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing, awakening, spring like redeemed captives when their bonds and bars are burst. Let the slave grinding at the mill run out into the field. Let him look up into the heavens and laugh in the bright air. Let the enchained soul shut up in darkness and in sighing, whose face has never seen a smile in thirty weary years, rise and look out. His chains are loose, his dungeon doors are open. And let his wife and children return from the oppressor's scourge. They look behind at every step and believe it is a dream, singing, the sun has left his blackness and has found a fresher morning, and the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night, for empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease. And that's, of course, Milton's revolutionary reader, William Blake, also an artist. Then we get a couple of short selections from the third elegy by Rainer Maria Rilke, and from The Ecclesiast by John Ashbery. O stars, isn't it from you that the lover's desire for the face of his beloved arises? Doesn't his secret insight into her pure features come from the pure constellations? That's the Rilke, and then the Ashbery from The Ecclesiast. Fine vapors escape from whatever it is doing the living. The night is cold and delicate and full of angels pounding down the living. The factories are all lit up. The chime goes unheard. We are together at last, though far apart. 
A few conspicuous lines do leap out at me. The night full of angels, referred to by John Perry at the end of The Subtle Knife, turns out to be drawn from that Ashbury line. And Rilke is unusual in that his poetry comes translated from the German. The translator is not listed in my edition, but it seems to be Stephen Mitchell. The Ashbury passage is the shortest, or at least feels shorter than the Rilke, but it may be the most poignant for the end of the story. And he's unusual in being a contemporary writer, and not so much as a canonical figure as a, can, a contender for canonicity. The overall effect is one of variety, or even universality of settings in these poems, of melancholy blended with affirmation, feeling, imagination, and thought raised to a tremendous joint task. Pullman labors at the amber spyglass, and he's proud of his borrowings and hard work, eager to place that work into the poetic tradition. We could go on and on about the poetry. I think we should go on to chapter one, The Enchanted Sleeper. In its title, it sounds like a fairy tale. Its epigraph comes from Little Girl Lost, one of Blake's songs of innocence. The short chapter is something like a prologue, but it very importantly begins one of the major undertakings of this third book, the revision and perhaps redemption of Mrs. Coulter's character. The long, descriptive opening brings us into an exotic new setting, in every sense beautiful, remote yet tangible, from the vibrant living things to the cello sounds of branches to the light, never undappled, falling through the leaves. It's also a harmonizing of the elements of cold associated with the north all along and of warmth of the south associated with Mrs. Coulter. In its very elaborateness, the passage is even a little uncharacteristic to my ear, overwrought, where Pullman usually likes to give a strong impression and get into the action. Here he lingers over the mist, silk flags, offerings, perpetual rainbows. The Judeo-Christian rainbow image of peace after the flood here gets applied to an Eastern concept of the holy man, the pious community venerating the cave for his memory. The cave would be ideal for a wolf or bear. Now it's inhabited by birds and bats, and the golden monkey snapping a pine cone, and Mrs. Coulter heating water. Oddly domesticated, and Will will remark on this when he sees her, she's no longer a predatory wolf or bear, or fox she was wearing when we first met her. She has let it be known, somehow, that she is a holy woman. The little girl Ama is the only person she interacts with. We'll see how it is they communicate. Ama's father comes with her this time, waiting respectfully at a distance. This father is present for a change. He is a crow demon, recalling the reassuring figures of the master and John Fa. Mrs. Coulter knows some of the people's language, but conceals just how much. She has their demons exchange a stream of understanding. I wonder if the butterfly form is especially conducive here. I'm thinking back to the journalist at the party. Or I wonder if it's a power any demon might have to clarify the meanings of words. To Amma's questions about her companion and her misgivings, Mrs. Coulter conceives a novel answer. 
to tell the truth. In a lyre-like fashion, Mrs. Coulter spins a tale of hiding from the enchanter who cast this spell on her daughter, how she's trying to cure her. This is her idea of the truth, then, a variation on the hiding and healing themes which ran through the subtle knife. And this scene has some echoes of other great works, too. The Cave, Plato, that Mary Malone mentioned. And even in The Enchanter, a bit of Don Quixote, maybe. But the important thing about hiding her daughter is true. And Mrs. Coulter even invites Ama in to show her. The reader is probably already expecting some new devilry. Ama, too, employs a finger-thumb gesture to ward off evil spirits, like the reader's finger-thumb gesture of flipping the pages to see what's going to happen. From Ama's innocent perspective, we see Lyra anew, much as if it was Will's first impression that reintroduced her in The Subtle Knife. We see her tawny fairness like a lion, her demon red gold, as part of the secret, Mrs. Coulter even tells Ama her name, Lyra. She warns of terrible disaster if she tells anyone else. Her sad and loving eyes, her brave, wise compassion move the little girl to tears. No wonder which of the two is the more deceived. But as Amma and her father bow and go back down the path, the narrative shifts to take in more of the picture. There's things there from the camp where Sir Charles died, begging the question again, why didn't Mrs. Coulter take the alethiometer with her too? She does have a pistol, which, in accordance with Chekhov's mantra, will come into play before long. The decoction she cooks up cools to body temperature or in this colorful phrase, blood heat. She gets Lyra to drink it just in time because she's awake enough to speak. She says, Roger. But soon she falls deeply asleep again. We see Mrs. Coulter care for Lyra, wash her as she did in the bath in her flat, cool her down and brush her hair. Through Ama, the people provide her with food, but her matches are running out. She'll keep the fire going day and night the note of the religious, but also of desperation there. And that's reflected in her internal division, too. The demon didn't like what she was doing, and she in turn is dismissive of his concern. Could think of Lyra and Pan much later. The monkey demon is never named, of course, and never speaks, at least not yet. I think there might be one part later in the book where he does finally speak. Miss Coulter asks herself, though, what was she doing? Was she mad? What would happen when the church found out? She's hiding her own eyes, I think is what it says. Mrs. Coulter presents for the book, but it's a complex, self-reflective, conflicted, one, besides being balanced by this new character, Ama, as a sort of proto-Lyra, in a fairy tale setting reminiscent of Pullman's short books, like The Firework Maker's Daughter. As each chapter opens with an epigraph, each 
at least for the first seven or eight or so, also fades out in a haze of voices and italics. We get Lyra's perspective now, somehow in a vision. She's whispering over and over. There's figures that are shadowy, with no faces, only voices, like half-forgotten things, in a great plain where there's no light, no mist. It's all flat. It's the way things were, we're told. It's the end and the last of all worlds. The people there have been imprisoned for some crime. No one knew why or what authority sat in judgment. And this dreamlike logic and intuition is conveyed in her impression of the ghost that she's speaking to. Their hands pass through one another, despite their pleading, and her words echo there. It's the world of the dead. It might be there forever. Roger's telling her he's done bad things, though he tried to be good. He hates it, how scared he is. He'll... And then the narration trails off to be taken up again at the end of the next chapter. With a device like this, how can we keep from reading on? So we come into chapter two, Balthamos and Baruch. The epigraph this time about the spirit passing before the face, the hair standing up on the neck, comes from Job. It's impossible to do justice to a short poem from Blake, much less the book of Job, as a context for this chapter. But in that one passage, the juxtaposition of spirit and flesh, the very visceral response to the disembodied, is what's emphasized. It comes from one of Job's comforters, and that suggests the ambiguous nature of the help and counsel Will is going to get here. We pick up the story just after the end of the subtle knife. That just after is repeated three times. So the chronology here in this book is fluid so far, moving back from where Mrs. Coulter is at her hideout to fill in the time it took her to get there, or at least some of it. It's not entirely satisfying. The first thing, anyhow, is to confirm in the light of the lantern that the alethiometer is still there. It is. Curiously, though, um, Mary's conversation in the cave proved that angels are in some way responsible for making the device work. Yet these angels can't read it, don't seem interested in it at all. Will's father did know more than they thought, Will points out, and he immediately seizes the initiative with them, because he's got the knife. They were not sent, they must tell the truth, that he has true flesh, theirs is not, and they are weaker than him. He has the knife, so he commands them. The plan is to find Lyra's first, and then go to Lord Asriel. The angels insist this is a mistake, but confess that they have no choice. Now, other angels we saw came to surround the sleeping children, as if they were on pilgrimage. Those were brighter and more visible, and presumably of a higher order than these two, whom Will is unable to see clearly at all. More obscure, the closer he tries to look. They'll see, or they'll be seen worse in the daylight, they say. They'll stay hidden 
<clears throat> like they have been so far. Will falls profoundly unconscious, but that fact that he'll see them best in twilight makes them a little like the unwritten story as Pullman describes it. Or, in Keats' language, uh, an example of negative capability. They come the next day to the lake where they'd camped before, where the dead man, the dead witch, eaten by the specter. Um, there, Will deduces correctly that it was Sir Charles that Mrs. Coulter um, must have killed him. This all comes from Baruch, who's been following her traces, splitting up from Baltamus, who will stay with Will. It's very much like Will is separated from Lyra, very much like Mrs. Coulter has separated herself from the church, as well as from Lord Asriel. These are just a few of the many separations that that Ashbury quote might be applied to. They're together, though far apart. Of the bodies of the witches picked at by carrion crows, none, however, is Seraphina Peckalus. She left suddenly, Will remembers, and might still be alive. It's a cheering thought. Now, these names, and this concept of angels, is explored in uh, one of the essays, in uh, one of those books of essays on Pullman, and I'll try to put a link to that in the description of this episode. One of Pullman's ideas about storytelling comes in explicitly here, though, that Will has to choose one way out of many, and when he does, the others will go out like candles. Can't do nothing, he must choose. And so his decision is a practical one, to go back, to see what things he can use. We might imagine Pullman doing the same, going back through his story to see what threads to pick up out of the many possible ones, choosing the one he'll follow. And, of course, we see him pilfering from his many sources for inspiration. The angel will guide if he goes wrong. That's the function of Socrates' demon, the sort of thing Pullman describes, obeying the story. We get a little more cheer from the realization that Will's hand wasn't hurting him. The absence of pain becomes a positive joy. His father had accomplished what the witches had failed to do. It's a bittersweet thought. Neither he nor the angel have what the specters want. Some combination of real flesh and attention. The kind of attention embodied in adult humanity. He's also got the knife, of course, which they're afraid of. And we see a variation on the hiding motif here. The camouflage material standing out the more against the background. Will scrounges some dried meat for food, and he even comes upon the body of the poisoned Sir Charles, where we get a summary of the theft and the knife. See how the face is distorted. He finds some things to steal. His father, he reflects, would have known what to take, but he'll have to guess. We get a list of them. We also get the angel's sarcasm coming through here about the, the things that Will needs. Um, it shouldn't be things like these, it's practical things. 
but common sense to recognize wisdom. <laughs> Will's reply is a sarcastic enough match. If Baltimos is wise, he couldn't tell. But Will's curious, and he elicits from the angel a certain amount of what will, de will be dismissed as metaphysical speculation. We learn Baruch was a man from Will's world, uh, whereas he, Baltimos, was not. Such changes are rare when people die. Their ages are about 4,000 years in Baruch's case and much older for Baltimos. Looking at the alethiometer, Will denies that Lyra could have made it all up, since it told her things she couldn't have known otherwise. And the state of mind she described allows him to use the knife to open windows with the subtleties in the air. Thinking on that, he tests out his idea, it comes to him with an electric shock, something we first noticed in the Belvedere chapter, that of the myriads of worlds, why is it the knife only cuts through back to his own? Exploring this, the author exploring it with him, he turns up some different qualities of points where windows can be opened, some elastic, some resistant. We open into a desert of dunes, to another with chained workers going to that factory Ashbury talked about, maybe. He establishes the rules that the old man in the tower, Giacomo Paradisi, didn't have time to explain. For paces where cutting through happens, for being able to get back to his own world. They were lucky so far, he reflects, with the movement between Shittagazzi and Oxford. And lucky, too, in cases where they couldn't cut through, in fact. There's another quality of resonance, like a drum, that's experimentally confirmed for him. That's where the ground is in the same place. It opens onto a grassy meadow with beasts. The increase in knowledge is a gain in strength and of amusement as well for the angel and the reader. Whatever you do is a source of perpetual fascination, he says, mocking Will, and mocking the reader too, who's interested in what it is he's doing. But wisely, at last, he takes the angel's advice and avoids the people coming their way. Moving on, Balthamos finds him a spring of water, darts ahead and finds a window, sensing Baruch's having been there. It opens to a tundra in Lyra's world. Of course, he reads his mind. His heart goes with him. They feel as one, Baltimos says. It sounds like a demon. Actually, it sounds like the opposite of that process by which demons were severed. Is that something like how these two angels have been joined? In another version of this idea, Will now knows what Lyra's world feels like with the knife. He can find it again. And yet another convenient discovery, the angel can take on other shapes, like a demon. It's even possible we're getting here a hint of what demons actually are, a kind of angel who's been so linked to a human life as Baltimus has to Baruch in spirit. The angel becomes a blackbird speaking to Will in the acid tone that this is unspeakably humiliating. If I were to choose yet another passage of poetry as an epigraph for this chapter, it might have been from Wallace Stevens, the fifth 
of his thirteen ways of looking. I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling, or just after. Plodding south, they make slow progress, and Will gets annoyed too. Tells the angel, don't speak at all. <laughs> they make for the forest, and he wishes for a path there, with that theme of choice still on his mind. Better choose a place to stay soon, or he'll be forced to stay somewhere for the night. The spot he found has got someone else's fire there. Wasting matches. Weary patience from the angel watching, from the reader. Then they share the food, the Kendall mint cake he took. The angel is tempted. It's a small peace offering, which the return of Baruch will solidify. As Balthama says, talking is best. Will watches curiously as they embrace. They love one another with a passion. Does any of Will's interest here partake of his recent bewilderment at the passion which led the witch to kill his father? It's an art of seeing that he's learning, he who always paid so much attention to not being seen. He's learning to use the fire as a focal point and have its smoke aid his view of the two angels. And with their outline, some of the character of each is revealed. Baruch's news is about what we learned in the first chapter, and it's accompanied with maps drawn in the soil. Never explained, though, is how Mrs. Coulter is so far away already. She's the queen on the chessboard again, zooming across impossible distances in the blink of an eye. Nor do we ever learn what became of her zombie contingent. She seems to be alone now. Four or five thousand miles she's traveled in just a couple of days. The knife couldn't abolish distance, but apparently Mrs. Coulter can. After all, she's a saint, hiding from her church. Then we finally get our first real beat of action in the story so far. The angels look up like the cat watching something invisible, what Will's learning to do. It blends the demonic, that cat, or cats, who are Will's companions, who showed him the window and saved him from the men, blends it with the angelic. From Job, um, a shape, the chariot, they call it. And we can hear it capitalized, the way dust is capitalized. The angels wrestle like wasps caught in a spider's web. They're both wasp and spider here, both feeble and desperate. Taking them by surprise with the flashlight, and Baruch claps his hand over the attacker's mouth. The awkward struggle seesaws between the angels trying to get Will to cut a way out and all three trying to keep this enemy from escaping. Neither side is very successful. Lord Regent, the angel summons, and when it's already too late, Will nerves himself to slash at this human-formed being, remembering Balthamos's words about their relative strength and weakness. By then, this cloud swirling, luminous like plasma, throbbing like a dynamo, heralds the arrival of the cavalry. The advance guard dissolves like mist, and Will pauses to lament that he hates this killing. But sobbing, 
mortally afraid. Interesting choice of words there. The angels beg him to save them. Like what we saw with Rudascati's encounter, only more violently, Will feels himself searched and scoured by a brutal intellect. And just in time, they escape through a window he cuts. The impact of the air behind, the spear that would have passed through him in that other world. Think of the spears thrown down by the angels in Blake's tiger poem. They come into the world of the dunes, an image of eternity. Now, the ed that essay, again, talks about how Metatron traditionally is the voice of God. Um, but uh, those voices are not as commanding here. It's no good telling him what he should do, Will insists. All he cares about is Lyra and his mother's safety. That is the point of his metaphysical speculation. And although they vowed not to share it with anyone but Asriel, the angels have a secret of the kingdom, something perhaps only Metatron also knows. And this is the reason that they need Will. It's something about the regent and about the authority. The names cascade out, the names he gave himself. This, I think, is the heart of Pullman's revision of the creation story along Gnostic lines, that the authority is merely the first of the angels, the strongest originally, but all of them are made of dust, which is what happens when matter begins to understand itself, to love and to seek to know more about itself. It condenses by a process which we might call understanding or love. And out of dust, condense angels. This first angel who told those who followed the lie that he had created them. But somehow one of those, someone wiser, more loving, less self-serving, and we should note female, like Sophia. This other angel found out the truth, and she was banished. This seems to constitute the background of the mythic war in heaven, this war which is now recurring, and perhaps is always recurring. In place of and then is the clouded mountain, called that because of the way it's shrouded and concealing, and at least part of it is the chariot, because it moves. There the ancient authority rules through the delegated power in Metatron, this delegation of authority we'll see is a hint at this great secret the angels have learned. As Will's father warned him, they tell him again, the enemy have seen the knife, they will be pursuing him for it. He wonders, though, what happens to the dead, thinking of his father now. And we learn a bit about the world of the dead now, that the ghost of Baruch never went there thanks to Baltamos. They call it a prison camp. We wonder, is it a world like this. It's implied, but not voiced yet. Is it one the knife can reach? Heaven and hell, anyhow, seem to be a lie. Another theme that will get emphasized and elaborated later. Their plan seems to be to bring Will to Lord Asriel as proof of the angel's bona fides. But to Will, and I think to the reader too, that sounds a bit feeble. They also 
want to prevent the subtle knife falling into Metatron's hands. Although it's by no means clear that Metatron could ever use it, without the knowledge that Will and the Guild have passed down. But anyhow, Lyra is actually the most important thing, as he keeps reminding us. She is the sine qua non of his involvement, despite the promise he just made to his father. Or at any rate, she's the prerequisite underlying that promise. A bit like Grumman's evasive promise to Lee to keep Lyra under the knife's protection. Even though he always meant to break that promise, we see that maybe he's done the one thing that will ensure that it's kept. Will tells the two angels to go to Azrael anyway. Just leave him alone. But they remind him he needs them to pretend to be his demon. And that will make us remember, hey, where did Cyan Couture, his father's demon, come from? Anyway, they exchange apologies, and Baruch goes alone after all, and Balthamo stays. It'll be two days' flight, we're told. There's a desperate longing, but still acknowledgement on the angel's part that Will's is the greatest burden, that he should try to be kinder. The chapter closes with the angel keeping watch, but that offers little comfort, maybe an allusion to the kind of comfort Job gets again, or to the carrion comfort of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Of course, the real close of the chapter is in that brief interlude of italics, Lyra promising to get them out. So we see this theme of liberation starting to take shape. She believes that Will is coming and that there's others who can help, Serafina and Yorick. And sure enough, the next brief chapters will catch us up with them. Thanks for listening.